I looked through a, through a number of passages on the subject relating to the subject of God's selecting or choosing uh, grace. Of course, one of the seminal passages in this proof of God's Word is found in Romans, the ninth chapter, where Paul uh, talks about the vessels fitted to honor and vessels to dishonor. And in the midst of that chapter, Romans chapter 9, verse 11, speaking about Jacob and Esau, he says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that called. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the Scripture that make clear that grace is at God's discretion, according to God's purpose and God's intention and plan, and not, the salvation is not according to man's intention. It's not a man that will it, nor a man that runs it, but of God that showeth mercy. But the specific question that I would like to look at today and address today is the why question. Why did God choose people unto salvation? Why can mean a couple of different things. If you see me out in the backyard building a chicken coop, and you could come up to me and say, why are you building a chicken coop? And the question could have several answers. I could say, well, I was hired to build this chicken coop. That's why I'm doing it. Or I was asked to build this chicken coop. That's why I'm building it. Or I could say, I just decided I wanted to have a chicken coop. That's why I'm building it. But those all answer the question of why in the sense of motivation. For what reason am I building this chicken coop? Another completely truthful answer to that question, why are you building this chicken coop, could be to hold the chicken. I'm building the chicken coop because this is where the chickens are going to live. I read that somebody asked Jesse James, the infamous bank robber back in the 1800s, asked him why he robbed banks, and he looked at the person quizzically and he said, that's where the money is. He, wasn't, he was being asked a question about his motivation, what would motivate you to do such you know, dastardly, unlawful thing, but he thought the question was, well, what's, the, what's your objective? And his objective was to get the money from the bank. We thought that was obvious. So we have to be specific when we ask this question, why? And the scriptures do speak somewhat to the first question, why? What is God's motivation in choosing or electing the people? For what reason does he do it? But the scriptures also speak with even, uh, I would say, a more manifold detail speak to the why of objective. To what end has God chosen his people? And that's the particular question I would like to focus on today. To what end? Why did God elect? Why did God choose a people? If you turn back just a page in my Bible anyway, uh, to Romans chapter 8 verse 29, in the midst of this glorious passage uh, about God's sovereign grace and provision, we read in Romans 8.29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to what end? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and whom he called, then he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. But central to the entire purpose of election, as displayed in this passage, and we'll see several others, is God's intention in choosing people to have them conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. That's the objective of election. 
and sadly through the years, somewhere lost among all the debates and uh, studies of election, just simply trying to prove and demonstrate the truth of election from God's word, it seems that along the way we sometimes have lost sight of the objective of election. People assume that election is to heaven and immortal glory, the election is to eternal life, the election is to salvation. Those things are all true, but those are not the entirety of the answer of why God chose a people. He did not choose a people just to have them housed in everlasting life and in eternal heaven with them after this life and this world are gone. He chose them, we trust he chose us here today to for some specific reasons that are summed up in this description in Romans chapter 8 verse 29. That we have chosen to be conformed to the image of his son. Let's look at some more passages that uh, elaborate this purpose of election. Why did God, to what end did God choose a people? I go all the way back to the Old Testament for one here in Psalm 65, the fourth verse. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy court. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. So here again, God's choosing is the driving force. It's not our choosing of him, it's his choosing of us. And him writer said, my Lord, I did not choose thee, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you, had you not chosen me. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and what's the consequence of that? And causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied. So he's chosen his people to cause them to approach unto him. He's chosen his people to cause them to find satisfaction in his house, in his holy temple. Let's go back to the New Testament now. And talking to some of the apostles for the end of the gospel, according to John, in John chapter 15, verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that, and that connecting word, that, shows the purpose, the intention, the end for which they were chosen, he says, I've chosen you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So here we see the choosing is for the purpose, the ordaining is for the purpose of God's children bringing forth fruit to God's glory, fruit that remains. Over in 2 Thessalonians, another well-known passage, 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 First Thessalonians, sorry. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 The Apostle writes, We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you. What has he chosen you to? To salvation. What kind of salvation? Salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So we see that the election has, as some of its objectives, sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification, of course, means God setting something apart for a sacred purpose. Sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. We'll see again here shortly in another passage or two that, that even that belief, even that faith, is itself a gift of God. So we're not saying that God has chosen man and left uh, a number of contingencies up to us that we get to decide or have to decide how to execute that. He's chosen us in a very, according to a very clear purpose and pattern. James chapter 2 verse 5 
Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? And the proper understanding of this verse is not that God chose the poor of this world because they were rich in faith. It's that he chose the poor of this world in order to be rich in faith. He grants them the wealth of faith in Christ to replace their poverty of material goods. Then uh, one of the perhaps uh, most famous of all passages dealing with God's uh, special unconditional election before the foundation of the world is of course found in the book of Ephesians particularly in the first couple of chapters of Ephesians. We'll look at a couple of verses here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says, According as he hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, why, what end? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He didn't choose the people merely to say, I want some people in heaven with me one day. God chose people to say, I am doing something in their life. I am choosing them to the end of holiness, of sanctification, of belief, of obedience, we'll see, of blamelessness before him in love. Having predestinated us, the verse continues, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, and here's the why of motivation, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And this morning at Chattanooga we looked at the second chapter of Ephesians, Let's look at verses 8 through 10, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto, means the why, to what end, the purpose. He's chosen us unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. In the same way that he before ordained salvation in its entirety, he specifically ordained before the dawn of the world, before the beginning of time as we know it, he ordained good works for his people to walk in. He chose us and made us with his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for this purpose, on two good works. Now the passage makes extremely clear that the good works are in no sense at all a cause or condition of salvation. In fact, he says specifically in the previous verse, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. But sometimes Bible students, uh, young Bible students in particular, get the false idea that because election is not based on good works, that election and salvation don't involve good works at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's the difference of cause and effect. Christ's love and Christ's purpose and Christ's foreknowledge is the, the moving purpose, the, the good pleasure of his will, the moving cause of election, and election is the moving cause of salvation which is designed to produce good works and sanctification and obedience in the lives of God's children. In fact, let's see those very words used in the first chapter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace be unto you, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So through sanctification of the Spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit, setting apart God's people for a sacred purpose, unto salvation and election are unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 13, verse 48 is another famous passage that sets the cart and the horse in the proper order. 
and gives us a clear understanding of cause and effect. In Acts 13 48, we read that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Not as many as believed were ordained to eternal life, but it's the reverse. The ordination, the selection, the predestination, if you will, of a people to eternal life produces a result of their believing. And it wasn't 60% or 90% or 99%. It was as many as. The scope of God's elected grace is exactly the same as the scope of the fruit that it produced in their lives. In fact, this faith, this belief is such a part and parcel of what it means to be the elect of God that Titus, in the first verse of his epistle, uh, Paul, in his first verse of his epistle to Titus, describes it as the faith of God's elect. It's something that all of God's chosen family have in common. It's a common denominator that's produced in them by the work of God's grace. And we can sum that up by going back to Ephesians chapter 1 to see that the ultimate purpose of all of this is the praise of the glory of God's grace. So, I'm going to uh, make a proposition which I, I challenge you to uh, disprove the proposition I'm about to set before you. I, mean, I would welcome uh, your studious review of the scriptures and your loving uh, communication with me if you think that this proposition is not sustainable. My proposition to you is that it is the, the, the fruit of salvation in the lives of God's children is so much bound up in the purpose of God's electing race that in the multitude of passages, and I've just touched on a handful of them here this afternoon, but in the multitude of passages throughout the scriptures, I suggest to you it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to even prove the doctrine of God's unconditional election if you had to avoid all the passages of scripture where election is coupled with the fruit it is intended to produce in the lives of God's children. In other words, it's not an afterthought. It's not an option. It's not some secondary level of elite, elite uh, Christianity where you reach the place where now I'm an obedient Christian instead of just a Christian. In fact, it is part and parcel of God's purpose in election to produce fruit in the lives of his children, fruit that remains, fruit that is evidence of sanctification, of obedience, of being sprinkled by the blood of Christ, fruit that's manifest in belief, fruit, fruit that is manifest in a vital living faith to the point that Paul elsewhere says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So that faith is the operative principle and faith works by love in the lives of God's children. I pray that these thoughts will be uh, an encouragement to you and cause for fruitful study. And um, I'll be back with you in a couple of weeks if somebody successfully disproves my proposition today that you can somehow support the doctrine of election from God's word apart from the fruitful election in the lives of God's people. God bless you.